You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Good morning, New City. It is so good to see your faces and to hear your voices worshiping this morning. It's great to be back. We've been, as you know, away for a couple weeks. And so big thanks to everybody holding it down and just serving. Man, we have incredible people every single Sunday serving here at New City. And uh, I just want to give a special thank you this morning. Can we just thank our worship team this morning? Uh, Just to give them a round of applause. That's okay. Uh, You guys labor hard. And so thank you, team, for that. the, uh, we made a, a last-minute pivot on the passage this morning. We we're going to jump into 1 Thessalonians, and uh, Rebecca, who helps us with admin, was probably panicking for a little bit because I didn't tell her that we were going to change it. Uh, but Revelation 7 is where we're going to be this morning. But I even love how the Lord even has kind of guided the song we just sang, this, this call to behold our God seated on the throne. That's what Revelation 7 is all about. And I think Revelation 7 is needed in this moment. Um, I'll explain more in a minute, but uh, just to give, to set a bit of a picture, some vision for, for what I think God is wanting to do in and through our church continually. And so let me just invite you to pray with me here and now that uh, we could set the cares of our week aside and the cares of our lives aside, just to listen to what God might have for us as a church, um, as individuals who are part of this church, um, as we have this compelling picture of this city that we're headed towards and the uh, events that are taking place there within. So bow your heads and, and pray with me. Father, thank you for this, this people, this family. It's a, it's a joy to be back and to, again, just hear the, the glory of your praises proceeding from this room. Thank you. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for the gift of worshiping you every single week. And um, Lord, we know the book of Revelation was given to us not to have um, captivating end times debates and discussions. It was given to us, uh, it was given to your church when they're weighed down and having a hard time and just need a portrait of where we're headed to keep us going. Oh God, I pray that you would pull back the curtain of where we are all headed. Those in this room that have put their faith in the glorious salvation of Jesus, this extraordinary future that's awaiting us in this throne room that we just read about. Lord, pull back the curtain and help us see that this morning. And will we find encouragement as a church? Will we find encouragement as individuals uh, to, to, to live out what we see in this picture? Spirit of the living God, meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Different translations kind of capture it in different ways. So it's people cast off restraint, or that cast off restraint could be translated, people uh, grow discouraged. Where there's no vision, people grow discouraged. Or maybe another translation you've heard, uh, without vision, people perish. Uh, Point being, we as human beings, we as God's people, we need vision. We need a picture of where we are headed in order to keep us uh, both faithful and focused in the present. And in many ways, that's what the book of Revelation does for us as God's people. The, the first recipients of the book of Revelation, the people who read it right in the first century, uh, were under very trying times. It was very difficult times. There were heavy prices associated with following Jesus. 
And you'd have to imagine as people had begun walking with Jesus, as people had put their faith in him, as these heavy times would come about, they were asking questions that maybe you've asked before. Is this worth it? Should I keep going? Um, is, it, is it all going to be worth it in the end? Is this something that I should give into the discouragement in my life for, or should I keep moving forward? It's, it's into that struggle that these first century Christians were facing that Revelation was written, and it is that prophetic vision. It is that picture that keeps God's people moving towards the glorious future awaiting them. And Revelation 7 in particular is one of the more captivating pictures of where God's people are headed. And so Revelation 7 has been a significant passage for those first century Christians. It's, of course, been a relevant passage for the history of the church throughout the centuries. But Revelation 7 for us as a church especially is a unique passage uh, because the first passage I ever preached on, before we were even having gathered services up at the Unitarian building up the road, uh, this was the first passage that, that I went to. And we had a vision night coming for our church where we were going to articulate to a group of people, hey, we're about to plant new city. This is what we want to invite you to be a part of. And I uh, was trying to figure out what should I go through. And I woke up one night. It was probably like 1 a.m. I couldn't sleep. This passage just struck me. And so I just got out of bed, went to the 24-hour Starbucks over off of Sudley Manor uh, and, and focused on this passage as what our church needed to hear going forward. And then this week, we woke up at like 1 a.m., and I couldn't sleep, so I just went down into the office, and, uh, and, and uh, this is where I feel like we gather at 3 in the morning. A little disjointed this morning. It's either because I've been out of the pulpit for a couple weeks, or this thing came together at 3 in the morning. Um, but nonetheless, this is what I want to focus on, and this passage is significant for us, both for the name of our church and the vision statement for our church. So I don't know if you think much, you just after a while, it just becomes words. New City Fellowship, what is that about? And, uh, you know, maybe the thought was, hey, we're going to be an old town. Is it like a play on words, new city, an old town? Is that, is that why we named this church? No, it's not. We, we named this new city because of Revelation 21 that describes the following from the Apostle John. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. And what we realized when we named this church was that there is a city awaiting us. It's a city unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life, but it's also the, the type of city that every human being longs for, but is unable to arrive at through human effort. It's the new city that our God is preparing for us uh, right now. And so uh, what, what we thought as we planted this church is, what would it be like for its own sort of approaches to life and values and so forth uh, in the midst of this city that we live in to give a small picture of the city to come? What would it look like for us to, to sort of put on display the values and the characteristics of the city to come in the city we presently live in, in the here and now? Almost like if you were, you know, say you wanted to go to Italy, you've never been to Italy before. And I know in San Diego and maybe other cities, there's a, there's a little Italy. And I'm sure if you've been to the real Italy, the little Italy feels nothing like the uh, little Italy in San Diego. But nonetheless, you could go there and get some sense of the, of the culture, the, the distinctive features, the values of Italy. What we want to be of the church is a foretaste 
uh, a, a sampling of the city to come. And so if we're going to do that, what we then have to ask as a church is, what are the distinguishing features of the new city, the new Jerusalem? What stands out about that city that we could put on display right here in this city and the here and now. And I'll just lay out our vision statement for you. We've not talked about it in quite a while, but let me just give you the the picture, the hope that we desire to continue to become as a church. We desire, uh, specifically, these words have come out of this passage in Revelation 7, we desire to be a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. What I want you to observe this morning in this passage is that that wasn't just a creative vision statement that we came up with, but every feature of that vision statement is actually found here within this text. And so I want to walk through it with you, look at some of these distinguishing features, and invite us to consider freshly, what does it look like for us to put on display the new city of our God in the midst of Prince William County, Manassas, and Northern Virginia as a whole. And so first one, what are the priorities of the new city that need to show up in our church? We desire to be, we we genuinely do desire to be a diverse community. And I've not talked about this for quite a while because our church is really what I mean by that uh, and see the, the profound realities that are found within. And so the first thing that captures John about the new Jerusalem is the vast And I do mean the vast array of all sorts of people that are represented there. Often when when the Bible wants to emphasize something, it walks into this throne room and it says every nation. But then he thinks, well, that's not sufficient enough. It's not just that they're from every nation, but from every tribe. But that still doesn't capture it. It's not just that they're from every tribe and every nation, uh, but they're also from all peoples. But even further, we could go go further still and say that the people gathered around their throne are from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Uh, John is exhausting his vocabulary to describe the great multitude of uh, various people gathered around this throne room. And so in the throne room of God are gathered together people from America, people from El Salvador, people from Japan, people from Nicaragua, people from Kenya, people from Russia, people from Ukraine, people from Palestine, uh, people from Manassas, people from Mexico, like uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered together around this throne. But, but what's so unique about it is not just that there's this great uh, multi-ethnic gathering around the throne uh, as though there's just like representatives from everywhere. The, the more captivating part there is that somehow they're unified. All these different people, all these different backgrounds, all of these differences from one another, according to worldly descriptions, there they are, unified, focused on King Jesus upon the throne. And as we planted this church, we longed that our church would be a display of this kind of ethnic unity, particularly in this city. Because we know in Manassas, Northern Virginia, D.C. as a whole, but especially Manassas, we are most certainly a place with a a multi-ethnic, a global city, you could say. And and it's important to recognize, like, it's not as though in Manassas or Northern Virginia, there's some great hostility that exists between the varying ethnic groups that are here. By and large, we're here, we get along, but what you don't often see is a tight-knit community of people that represents the ethnic makeup of our city. And so what we asked is, God, what would it look like for us to be, yes, a tight-knit community, united together, 
But in that tight-knit community, to be united together with the varying ethnic backgrounds that make up this city, add to that age, add to that socioeconomic status, add to that even uh, political perspectives, what would it look like for us to be united as a tight-knit community in the midst of all of that difference? That's what we want to see. You know, the question obviously is how how do you do that? And maybe the jury's still out on on how you do that, honestly. Um, But some might suggest in order to do that, what you need to be really focused on is all of the different things about us. So like make, it, make a great emphasis about all the things that are different and, and, and maybe that will draw people together. And there's something to be said about appreciating our differences and drawing one another together in the midst of them. But, but actually what will draw us together regardless of our differences is actually as Christians, absolutely the same. Some of you have read Dane Ortland's book, um, uh, on Gentle and Lowly that we give out here. He has a a new book out called Union. It's a book describing our union with Christ. And in it, he, he gives this captivating picture of our core identity, our union with Christ. And this is the ingredient. This is what is essential for there to be a community of people that are different from one another, yet somehow also united. I want you to hear how, it, how he describes your identity through your union with Christ here in this book. He says, if you can bear with an irreverent illustration, think of yourself as an onion, okay? So this morning, just pause. Think about yourself as an onion, The outer peel consists of peripheral things about you, like uh, uh, the parts of you that don't matter that much, your clothes, the car you drive, things like that. If you peel that layer away, what's what's next? Uh, A collection of things slightly more essential to who you are. The family you were raised in, your personality profile, your blood type. The next layer is uh, deeper still, your relationships, your dearest friends, your roommates if you're single, uh, your spouse if you're married. Peel that away. The next layer is is, is even deeper than that. What you believe about the world, the truths you cherish deep in your heart, who you believe God is, what your final future will be, where you think world history is headed. The next layer after that is even deeper still. It comprises your sins, your secrets, past and present, things about you that no one else knows, but keep peeling away layer after layer after layer, everything that makes you, you. And what do you find at your core? You find at your core that you are united to Christ. And I love this line. That is the most irreducible reality about you. Let me say that again. You are you. Peel, out, peel away everything else, and the solid, immovable truth about you is your union with the resurrected Christ. What does that have to do with the picture of this multi-ethnic group that we see in Revelation? Well, what makes that picture of this multi-ethnic, diverse group that's represented in Revelation 7 is this. We can be really different from one another because the irreducible reality at the core of who we are is the same. You can say amen to that. It's okay. We are at our core united to the resurrected Christ. And if that's the same, the most fundamental thing of who we are, well, then let any other differences exist that exist. We have that core reality in common. And so that's what we have to lean into. That's what we have to embrace as a community of people, our common union, our shared identity with Christ, regardless of whatever other descriptions you could put about the peripheral areas of who we are. That's the first thing that stands out about God's city is that it's a, it's a diverse and yet unified people. Secondly, what stands out to me, this city is proclaiming 
a message. Often cities have like a message, a tagline, a slogan that sort of in a, in a, in a sentence uh, summarizes who they are as a people. And so you guys can perhaps help me out with this. Uh, Virginia's is what Virginia is. For lovers, good. You guys uh, are familiar on that one. Anybody from New York? What's New York's tagline? The city that never sleeps. You got it. Very good. Uh, Vegas. What happens? In Vegas, stays in Vegas. I think that primarily has to do with your money. Like you bring your money to Vegas and it stays in Vegas. You come back without any. Um, Evan, don't answer this one. I want to see if anyone else can. How about the city of Manassas? Anyone know our slogan here? Anybody got it? Evan, give it to us. Historic heart, modern beat. That's the the city of Manassas. That's what we want to be about. Our historic, every city tries to come up with like a a slogan. What's you find a message that encapsulates what stands out about that city, what's unique about that city. So as we look into the city of God and we see them there, we most certainly see a message. And uh, it's not a message that they're just like, oh, modern heart, historic beat. Like, like it's a message they're really passionate about because they're yelling it out from the top of their lungs. Uh, that message can be found in verse 10. It says, and crying out with a loud voice, this is the message of the city of God. Salvation belongs to our God. That's the message that's proclaimed. It's the message of the gospel. And it implies a couple things. One, everybody who makes it into God's eternal city, first of all, has to recognize their need of saving. Many people have a a perspective of God and and think of him in terms of like, maybe he can get me out of a pinch. Maybe he can help me financially. Uh, Maybe he he can give me some wisdom on how to navigate life. But the only people who make it into God's new city are those who say nothing short of, I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. So it implies, first of all, the need that we need salvation. And then secondly, it it implies the reality that God has provided that salvation in the person and work of his son. We need salvation in God through sending his son to be born as one of us, uh, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying an agonizing death on the cross for our sins, raising on the third day, ascending into this very throne room where he's reigning and ruling the entire universe. Uh, that's the salvation that God has, has provided, and that is the message that we exist. We exist to proclaim as a church. We exist to proclaim, number one, we need saving, all of us. And number two, God has far and above, beyond provided the salvation that we need as people. We need that salvation. And just a simple application of what that looks like for us as a church is this. We have always and we need to continue to saturate our services with Christ in the songs we sing, in the messages that we preach. Christ, I love in the ways we sing. I love the liturgy that we go through that reminds us of this message of salvation. Uh, Man, I love that we preach from the Bible and it's never just helpful tips on how to live your life. It's always a bit of here's where you fall short and how Jesus has provided everything you need to save you. We gotta be centered on this message forever going forward. Number three, what stands out about uh, the city of God? Uh, We've been called to make something to create something in God's city. Uh, it couldn't be outlined any more clearly than in Matthew 28, 19. Let me just read the marching orders of this church and every other church that's ever existed. It's this, go therefore and make disciples. 
We exist to become a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are called, commanded, and commissioned to make disciples of Jesus. I guess the question is from Revelation 7, where do we see that happening here? What I want you to look at is that, yes, it is happening here, but it's coming through a bit of a metaphor. You know, disciple is like the clear word for it, but a metaphor comes to us to help us understand the making of disciples, and it comes through the metaphor of clothing, of clothing. It it says here that, uh, who are these in white robes? And it says they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a bit of a graphic description, but what it's doing is it's helping us understand our natural state through the metaphor of clothing. Put plainly, naturally, we are not fit for the presence of God. Our sins have filed us. Fortunately, it's not just a couple of awkward spots on these clothings that we wear elsewhere in the Bible. It describes our, our moral character, our righteousness as that of being like filthy rags. And yet, if that's our natural state, here they are in Revelation 7 with these brilliant, beautiful, white robes de- de- uh, designating righteousness, moral purity. How did that happen? I want to show you how that happened through one of my favorite songs. I'm going to read it. It's, it's, it's like a mix between a rap song and a nursery rhyme. It's a little bit long. Uh, just bear with me. Have any of you ever heard the nursery rhyme about Penelope Judd? Has anyone in the room? You've not heard of this. Okay, so I'm going to read some of it to you. And then on your way home, if you have kids or not, I don't care, uh, play this song. It's phenomenal. It's about this little girl uh, that lives in this very broken, kind of, kind of uh, filthy world, but what she experiences together. So, so just hang with me for a minute. If this doesn't work out, I'll never use a nursery rhyme again, but I think it's really good. It begins by describing her town. So, and here's the thing. I have, I have like a similar ministry, like Jeremiah cried all the time, and I sometimes do it on like silly things. I will try my best to hold myself together for this, but I absolutely love this song about Penelope Judd, so just bear with me, okay? So it, it, it describes her town initially. One town in particular there was called Mud, because every sister, cousin, and brother, from head to toe in mud, they were covered. But anyway, in this town called Mud, there lived a little girl named Penelope Judd. Now, Penelope was a very sad, sad girl because she was living in a bad, bad world. One day, uh, Penelope, she gets this letter from her grandfather, and it says the following. He said, Penelope, it's great news that I bring. On the mountaintop, there lives a great king, and the king has a son, and being a proud father, he's going to throw the prince a huge party in his honor. But the good part And I hope it gets you excited. Penelope Judd, you're officially invited. He's sending a dove. He'll tell you everything you need to know. Just have your bags packed and be ready to go. So Penelope Dove comes and he leads her through all these complications, all these struggles to get there. But but she finally, after all these struggles, following the dove, uh, obviously illustrating the Holy Spirit, brings her to the castle, brings her to the palace. And and, and it says the following. Uh, The dove led her to the palace and said, farewell, see you inside. He fled away. Penelope rang the bell. A huge angel answered, looked her up and down. She knew something was wrong because he had a big frown. 
Can I help you, ma'am? Yes, I'm here for the party. I have an invitation, he said. I'm so sorry. There's no way I can let you through these doors. The king won't let anyone dirty up his floors. She didn't understand, so without coming near, he reached out into his pocket and he pulled out a mirror. And for the very first time, she saw that she was dirty. The palace was spotless. She knew that she was unworthy. The angel continued, I'm sorry, little friend, but a voice inside the party said, you can let her in. The next thing she knew, the prince was at the door. He looked her up and down and smiled and said, there's room for one more. He touched her. He reached out and touched her. Instantly, she was clean, wearing the brightest robe that she had ever seen. If the mud kids had seen it, they would have gone blind. Where do you get that, she asked. He said, actually, it's mine. And as he led her in through the palace doors, he sang the sweetest song that she'd ever heard before. I'm sorry, I really didn't want it. It shouldn't happen, but it does to me. I don't know why, all right? He sang the sweetest song that she'd ever heard before. Long ago, laid aside my crown, became a mud king, traveled to your town. They kicked me out, didn't want me around. But to those who loved me, they get to share my crown. How did Penelope City get pure white robes? Jesus does it. He takes filthy people and he makes them clean by trading places with them. He becomes a mud kid. Penelope gets to become royalty. Jesus took on our sinful humanity at the cross. We get to take on his perfection. Jesus makes us clean by trading places with us by becoming a mud kid, so to speak, so that we can become royalty, perfected like him. And so what does this have to do with discipleship? It has to do with this. Discipleship is basically us helping one another realize the clean clothes that Jesus has provided for us and to then how to wear them while we wait for his new city. Discipleship is helping us realize the, the, the clothing that God has provided and how to, how, to, how to wear that, how to live that in our day-to-day life. Discipleship is asking, what does it look like for me to put on Christ in every area of my life? What does it look like for me to put on Christ's character at work, in my singleness, in my marriage, with my kids, with my money, with any area of my life? What does it look like to display the character of Christ that he's made available for me by trading places for me? That's the role of discipleship in this church, and that's what we are called to do with one another. Whether it's in community groups, whether it's through meeting over coffee, we're to intentionally help one another to look like Christ while we wait for those pure white robes that have been purchased for us. Does that make sense? That, that is our calling as his people. We are called to make disciples by saying, Jesus has done everything he needs to make you clean, to make you pure, to make you righteous. Now live out of that new identity that he's provided for you. We're called to make disciples. Number four, we're called to engage in the renewal of our city. Renewal, what does that mean? Of some- Uh, Dictionary describes it as the replacing or repairing of something that's worn out, run down, or broken. So what we said as a church very early on is that we want to be a church that finds situations in our city that are broken, that are worn out, that need repair, 
And with God's help, we want to, as Jesus has shown us and making us new, but, but a, a deeper perhaps reason than that, the reason we engage in renewing broken things in our city is this. In God's new city, all the broken things get made new. Listen to the description of renewal, repair, putting broken things back together. Later here at the bottom of the chapter that we read in verses 15 through 17. So it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God, thank goodness, will wipe away every tear from every eye. Where's renewal in that? You know where the, the renewal is that's happening there? It's with this word that's mentioned twice. It's with this word, anymore. Anymore. God is, is saying to us in this passage, here's how the renewal is going to work. You know how people get hungry? They lack basic necessities for food, for water. In your city, in my new city, that's not going to happen anymore. You, you know how people lack basic things in, in your city, perhaps sometimes, like shelter, there are refugees. Uh, there, there are people who even lack the basic need of a, of a home, whether a physical one or a relational one. Well, in my city, that's not going to happen anymore. You know how you're, you're in a world filled with pain and hurt of all sorts and sizes, emotional, physical, mental, all kinds of pain. In my city, I'm going to wipe away every tear because that's not going to happen anymore. This is renewal. This is taking broken warm, not in my city. And so we have prayed as a church through the years that the Lord would guide us to areas of our city that are hurting uh, and that we could be a blessing there. And, and we've done a lot of different things, but I was reflecting recently that I, I think the Lord has, has done even a bit of a focusing of the type of renewing work that we are engaged in as a church. Like we started the church and we sent like people out to go explore. And Manassas has all kinds of things that need to be renewed. We've got homelessness issues. We've got substance abuse issues. We've got abortion issues. Uh, we've got poverty issues. Like we have all kinds of things that could be renewed in this city. And through the years, we've kind of narrowly focused our attention into one particular area. Do you know what I would just name it? The area that burdens us a lot as a church in this area? Struggling kids. This church cares a lot about struggling kids. And we've, we've done things through uh, the years and we'll continue to do things through the years that bring uh, renewal there. And so uh, what I would love I would love for renewal to continue to spring forth from this church into our community by our members doing things like going to those in the foster system and saying stuff like, hey, you know how your home isn't a safe place to be? Well, with, with God's help, we're going to step in and that's not going to be the case anymore. Uh, for kids that need to be adopted, hey, you know how you don't have anyone right now to call mom or dad? Well, because of the new city that, that God's creating here and now, that's not going to happen anymore. And that we would move to places like the Georgetown South Community Center. And we would be able to say things like, perhaps not exactly like this, but hey, you know how people fall behind in school and then that fast tracks them to poverty? We're going to step in and help so that doesn't happen anymore. Hey, 
kids in struggling neighborhoods, you know how you have really difficult situations at home and maybe you don't have anyone to connect with or to talk to about it? Hey, we're gonna step in and that's not going to happen anymore. Uh, Hey, you, you know how you don't really have anyone to guide you or give you wisdom or mentor you through the difficulties of life? Um, well, in God's experience anymore. What sort of anymores from Revelation could we bring into the here and now by God moving us towards these hurting areas in our city, particularly struggling kids and saying, not anymore. We are not called to, nor could we ever fix every broken thing and even a pocket of Manassas. Nonetheless, we can move towards these hurting places and say, let me just give you a glimpse, a a small glimpse of the city to come where everything is renewed by the way we bring renewal into this situation in the here and now. One final area. I saved it for last because it's actually the most important. We desire to be as a church, just like what's happening in Revelation 7, a diverse community that's proclaiming this message of salvation, that proclaims the gospel, that makes disciples, that renews our city, and then if we fail at everything else, let's succeed at this one. We exist for the glory of God, and I notice it in a particular way in this passage. So from this passage, we can see people and angels interacting with the God upon the throne, And there's like a bit of this, I would describe it as a get and then give relationship. Uh, I love this sort of give and take back and forth that's happening uh, uh, here in this passage. And so uh, what's happening is the people there are getting something uh, from God, but it maybe isn't what we'd first expect. Usually when we think about getting from God, we like have some issue in our life. We need financial help. We need some prosperity. We need just like a good place for our kids to grow up. And so like we need to get something from God in particular, but that's not quite what's happening in this passage. Do you know what the people in this passage are getting from God? They're getting from God heart-pounding, jaw-dropping, fall on the floor amazement at the God upon the throne. The the, the people in this passage are beholding God, contemplating his works throughout history from creation, absolutely astonished, astounded, amazed at what they see. Just like we sang older, behold our God. They behold God and they stand amazed. That's what they get from him. They get amazed. And what do they give back in response? They give back glory to him as a result. They stand amazed at who he is, at what he's done. They fall on their, fla- on their faces and then they once again exhaust human language to try to describe the glory that's owed to the God who's so amazing. Uh, So uh, listen again, they're waving branches, they're crying out with a loud voice, they're falling on their faces in in amazement, and then they give glory back to God saying, God, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power, and might to be our God, not just now, forever and ever and ever. Like they're thinking every kind of characteristic, every, every attribute that they can think of uh, about God. They're so amazed by him that they say, God, I can't just say you're amazing or I can't just say I glorify you. God, to you be glory and honor and blessing and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might forever, forever. They are exhausting themselves as they glorify God. So if that's what they do then, I think there should be something of that represented in how we engage with God here and now. 
I hope that we can continue to be as a church, both like inwardly in places that we can't see, like in our soul, we would be amazed at God as we worship together. But then that would overflow in the way we worship, that we would at the very least be people where you could say, I don't even know if I believe in God, but then they give him glory. And so let's continue to be a church clear on a couple things. God is amazing. And in light of who he is, we long to give him glory. As we continue forward as a church, I pray that we would continue to run after this picture of fostering a diverse community that proclaims this gospel message that seeks to make disciples, that seeks to renew our city, all ultimately for the glory of our God upon the throne. And so this morning, uh, communion servers, you, you can join me up here. Band, you, you, you can make your way up as well. Um, the way we take communion at New City is you can reflect in your seat for a moment, if that would be helpful. And then whenever you're ready, you can come forward and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Uh, and then you can return to your seat and whenever's convenient for you, you can participate in the elements. But the people in this passage... They're absolutely amazed at God. And so my invitation to you, if you've put your faith in Jesus this morning, is this. Come stand amazed this morning that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. And then after you're amazed at that, Stand amazed that, that after he took bread, stand amazed that he, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It will be poured out for the sins of many. And take that bread and take that cup and as you participate it, uh, as, you par- as, you, as you partake of it, stand amazed as you remember all that Jesus has done for you. If you are here this morning and you've not come to a place in your life where you've put your faith in the salvation that Jesus provides, I want to urge you not to participate in communion. We do really believe that the communion meal is a symbol for those who have trusted in Christ uh, and are now seeking to follow him. And if that's not the case for you, don't, don't come forward quite yet. What we say to you, however, is not to come forward and take communion, but to recognize, just like we said this morning, salvation belongs to our God, and it comes through his son, Jesus. Let me just ask you this. Do you see your need, or aided, but literally to be saved by God from your guilt, from the the wrongs that you've done, uh, from from the sin in your life, from the, the death that we will all one day experience? Do you see your need for salvation? If you do, it it is there for the taking. It is yours right here and right now. If you would, even as we come forward, you can sit in your seat and pray, God, I know I've sinned against you. I need salvation. Would you save me through what Jesus has done? God, I believe, even it's perplexing, but I believe that you put forward your son to die in my place and to rise on the third day. I trust it. I believe it. If you would make that your honest prayer in whatever words you'd put it, then salvation is readily available for you this morning. Let me pray for all of us as we get ready to come to the table. For the rest of us, let's do it. Let's stand amazed at what these elements represent. And then let's respond by giving God glory. God, help us to do that right now, to not just go through the motions, but to be 
amazed, astounded, astonished in what you have done in saving us. You've given your body, you've poured out your blood to make us new. God, we are all the descriptions of renewal, they all meet us. We're broken, we're in need of deep repair, we're in need of resurrection, we need new life. And that's what you've provided through Jesus. So we stand amazed this morning at you and we give you glory. Lord, would you even guide people in this room that just need to say, yes, Lord, I give my life to you. Would you make that so in these moments? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you can come forward.